Good morning, church. How are we doing today? Great. All right. Uh, would you please meet me in Lamentations chapter 2? Lamentations chapter 2. We'll be in the entire chapter today. Uh, as, as you turn there, I want to bring a couple of things to your attention. One, right after the gathering today, we have uh, a group connect. So that means that if you're not currently connected to a group, this is our primary method, if you will, of discipleship here at Church in the Square. We encourage you to get connected to a group as soon as you possibly can. And so the way that you do that is after the gathering in the lobby there, there'll be men and women representing the number of different groups at our church. Go and meet one of them, ask them questions, and they would love to get to know you and invite you to their group. If you have any questions, one of our deacons, Brad Anderson, would be happy to help you. There he is, Brad. I pro- if you're up there, I promise, he's, he's down here raising his hand. Um, also, We want to talk a little bit about how to care for one another in the coming months because we want to be a community of faith, and yet we desire to be really wise as well. And so therefore, whether you personally think that the the coverage of the coronavirus is a real threat or being blown out of proportion, uh, we think that as a community, we need to start thinking about this together. In fact, we just learned that a number of churches in Washington State are closed this weekend and may likely be closed in the following uh, weekend. So this is a challenge for us to face that... We live in a particular age, though, that we realize that everything is politicized, so even a disease. So based on your political affinity, you may be viewing this disease differently. And so we um, are grateful that we get to consult somewhere else. I heard a pastor actually just say this week that if he got his doctrine wrong, he thinks that no one would notice. But if he said the wrong thing politically, he'd get fired. And so we realize that this can be uh, contentious for us, and so we come uh, to God's word in this. Uh, The Surgeon General... Um, We did a conference call with a number of faith communities this past week, um, and therefore that kind of helped us think through what are appropriate ways for us to begin to think and respond uh, as a community, Uh, let alone uh, if you have uh, a child in CPS in the Chicago Public Schools, you got a call this week about uh, a staff member, an employee of uh, the public school who was one of the first confirmed cases in Chicago, and so we really want to be mindful about this uh, as a community. We want to be a healthy community community. Uh, And so we'll be changing the way that we serve communion in the the coming months. Right now, it's with uh, crackers and what's called intinction. You take a piece of the cracker, dip it into the cup. Uh, Coming next week and following, we're going to have uh, little cups filled with the fruit of the vine with a sealed piece of cracker on top of it um, as a way of just being mindful about many of the different ways that we're approaching this particular uh, season, not only as a country, but as an entire world. And so we want to be mindful of that, but we also want to be mindful about things like touch. And, and just so we're clear, especially as Christians, we should always be mindful of touch. We should always be mindful that just presuming that you can and should touch someone is not okay. And therefore, this is a good opportunity for us to practice healthy relationships by asking permission or even being cool if someone refuses to touch you, to shake your hand, to give you a hug. It will be okay, right? This is the way that we care for one another. It may be socially awkward, but that's on us, not on the gospel. The gospel teaches us that to be brothers and sisters is far greater than that simple interaction. And so we want to be mindful of what's going on in the lives of our sisters and brothers that may be different from ours. And so let's give one another the benefit of the doubt. Let's extend grace to one another if we're facing something like this uh, differently. 
let's also take additional credence about what it means to tough it out in a sickness. And I'm speaking to myself as a parent. I'm speaking to all of us as parents. I realize sometimes this is legit the only 90-minute free break you get all week. This is why I try to preach for 60 minutes every Sunday is because I know it ministers to your soul, right? Um, But Let's just be particularly mindful that for the gathering and for group to not muscle it out if you're sick or to bring your children if they are sick. But another way that we can care for one another is by staying home. And if this is something we have to do as a community, we'll keep you posted on this. We don't foresee this happening immediately, but we'll do our very best as an elder and leadership team to communicate as much as possible uh, what we think it means to to care for one another well uh, through this. And yet in all of this, in the New York Times I read this morning in the parenting section, uh, of the newspaper. I get the, mag- I get the magazine. I get the uh, newspaper delivered once a week. That's right. I'm that guy that still has like a physical uh, subscription to a newspaper. If you're like that, then the Lord loves you too. All right. We're a, we're a blessed elect bunch. Um, but this morning in the parenting section, there was a, an address to parents about how to deal with the coronavirus with your children. And I think this helps us to see how we face this differently than the world. They said, deal with your fears first. And then go to your children so they know it's going to be okay. Here's the gospel. That may seem good, but the gospel says we bring our fears even to our children and we point them to how Jesus is the one who's ultimately faithful. How even in mommy and daddy's fear or questions or uncertainty, we trust in Jesus. So we don't fit ourselves together and get it all figured out first. We ultimately walk together in this and we trust in Jesus. We don't trust in the right policy, even though we want to walk forward in those things and take these precautions in faith. But God is sovereign and ultimately he's the one who protects and cares for us. And so even in something like this, we're gonna trust in him. Amen? Amen. All right, in December of 2017, Pew Research uh, reported that after talking to 5,000 Americans, and they asked them why or why they did not go to church. The number one reason why people go to church, according to the Pew Research poll, 81% said they go to church to be closer to God. This was a similar finding by a four-round study that Barna Group did in a similar question in 2014. They found that despite age, despite denomination or season of life, 43% of the people who attend church regularly do it to be closer to God. Here's what's wild. They look conversely at those who do not go to church regularly, and the number one reason why people do not go to church regularly is they believe they can find God somewhere else. And so here's the interesting thing. We all have the exact same reason. Whether you are going to church or whether you do not go to church, we are all trying to get in the presence of God. We all, we all want to be in his presence. So regardless of what we believe about church, we have a similar view of God. We're supposed to be close to him. This is the presumption. We're supposed to be in relationship with him. We're supposed to be in his presence. We're supposed to have interaction with him. There's something instinctual, I think, about what it is to be human, to live in close proximity with the divine or God. To be in relationship with them is to be close to them, to be close to them. In fact, I had to ask Laura's forgiveness this morning because there was a way I physically moved away from her in protest, even last night, to communicate something. I had to ask her forgiveness because I was not being clear. I was not being humble. I was merely emoting and not being loving toward her. I didn't draw near to her even in discomfort. See, this is what we do, that we know that something about close proximity communicates intimacy, communicates togetherness. 
And so even when it comes to our faith, we use this kind of language, and even we talk about our spiritual formation based upon proximity to God. Isn't it true that we say stuff like, I'm not feeling close to God right now, not feeling close to him? Or when we we sing a particular song, we say, when we sing that song, when I sing that song, I feel so close to God. Or when I serve in this way, or when I behave this way, I don't feel the presence of God. Or perhaps I'm going through an entire season where God just feels distant. Are you tracking with me? The way that we speak about God and our relationship with him. See, why we go to church reveals a lot about why we go to God. A lot of why and why we don't go to church reveals why we go to God, like our understanding that God's presence is really a gauge for us of our spiritual disposition, our proximity and closeness to him. There is an expectation, I think, about feeling and process and experience that when we come to him. And so as we come to Lamentations chapter 2 today, being close with God will not at first be soothing. So this is, this is an interesting thing about God's presence. When you really get in his presence, it's not always the same in that I always feel the same about it. See, because when I am living in a way of obedience, being in God's presence is really great. When I'm not living in obedience, that song actually isn't that special anymore. That, that idea isn't really warm and fuzzy to me anymore. It's actually kind of indicting. It doesn't feel nice. So after all, the church, though, we believe is to be a place or people presumably feel close to God. And so perhaps that's why 81% of us or 43% of us are here, depending on which research speaks your language. But the scriptures teach us something about this. It gives better language to it than just a feeling. See, sin separates us from God. Therefore, when we are sinning, we feel this distinction. We feel this distance. Therefore, to re-enter his presence is all about confession. It's about repentance. It's about submission. And that's really hard really challenging to enter into that because I've got to confess, I've got to consider, I've got to lament, I've got to cry out in a particular way. See, what Lamentations does is it gives us language for that, and it's deeply hopeful because here's the lie that we believe. We ultimately believe that, that this distance is what we deserve, and we've got to fix it before we get back into his presence. We've got, we've got to figure out what this emotion is so that I can re-enter the community, I can come back to God, But this kind of distance, what the gospel teaches us, is not something that we close, but something that God in Christ closes on our behalf. He is the one who shrinks down the gap that our sin creates in proximity with him. Therefore, it is within his presence that we get to figure out this brokenness. We don't remove ourselves to try to figure out our sin. We don't rebel against him to try to go do what we want for a while, then come back to him. If you're in Christ, you're in his presence. And so the question is, how do I deal with my sin in the very presence of God? How do I deal with my emotions in the very presence of God? See, what we do instinctually is we want to separate from someone when it's hard, when it's difficult. But what the gospel teaches us, if you are in Christ, you don't have to go anywhere. And in fact, you can't that we wrestle through this together, that close proximity with God actually has very little to do with what I feel and much more to do with who I am. It has much more to do with my status, not just my emotion. Lamentations, I think, will go a long way in giving us language for our own lament, our own angst, our own anger, our own frustration, our own distance that we feel with God and will remind us by God's grace how close he actually is. So would you bow your heads and pray with me as we prepare to come to Lamentations chapter 2. Heavenly Father, help me, help us, your children, to trust you. 
Help us to come to you in such a way, Father, that um, leaves presumption aside. I know even in the hustle of my, my morning, it can simply uh, be easy to go through the motions in a sense of not being engaged or not listening or flippantly discrediting uh, your voice. And so, Father, I pray that you would arrest our attention. I love, Father, I have such confidence knowing that you know each of these men and women in, in eternally better than I ever could. And so, Father, I pray that you administer to them by your spirit through the work of Christ. Would you encourage the person who just feels completely desperate in shame right now? I pray that you would speak to my sister who feels like she's going to give you one more shot today for whatever reason. Pray for my brother who uh, senses as though the sin of his past will necessarily be the sin of his future. I pray for uh, the families, men and women, single, married, with children, without, and all of the different seasons of life that feels like the hustle is killing them. I pray you'd be their peace. Father, would you help us to grow today as a church in the things that you desire for us to grow in, that the fruit of the Spirit would blossom here today, love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Maybe not choose one of those things as our favorite and think that it's done, but God, would all of those things come to fruition in the hearts of your people today. Help me to be clear. Help me to be responsible with your word. Uh, help all of us, Father, as we hear your word proclaimed to listen and obey, to respond in humility and confession and in joy. So, Father, teach us, guide us, love us as only you can, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Chapter 2 uh, really is kind of like a storm in motion, and so it's important for us to keep chapter 1 in mind as we come to Lamentations, or else this velocity of God and his anger will not make sense to us. Remember, Jerusalem has fallen, and they have fallen because of centuries of impropriety, centuries of infidelity, centuries of sin. She has been covenantally unfaithful to God. And so this language of marriage, this language of ruin and of isolation and even the pangs of death begin to take over chapter one. See, her former glory has passed away. And in fact, the Lord has taken it from her because the people of God attempted to take his glory and steal his glory. And this is what happens when you attempt to steal the glory of God. You come up with nothing because you can't do it. See, remember, Lamentations is a series of five poems, one in each chapter. And so we're coming to the second poem that it's, it's self-sufficient. It, it, it's a poem unto itself, chapter two is, and yet it's thematically connected. And so what was, what was written about in the first chapter is pertinent for us in the second, though, though stylistically they are independent. It's a complete poem without the, the need of the structure of the first, but certainly with need of the context. So like the first poem, the poet begins with this wailing or this crying out like a dirge, like a funeral procession. Look at verse one in chapter two of Lamentations. How the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. The style is the same, and the beginning word is actually exactly the same. We get this different sense right away in the second poem than we had in the first. 
See, whereas Lamentations 1 seems to be the writer blaming Jerusalem or making sure they understand their culpability and their brokenness, here we now have from the very outset of chapter 2 that the the poet directs his attention towards God and in particular towards God and his anger and this separation that he has with his people. See, there's a cloud between the Lord or Adonai and his people. Kathleen O'Connor suggests there is a murky barrier between the two, a blocking out, a veiling or erasing of her identity. Who the city was, she no longer is. God has cast his people aside, away from their former glory, down from heaven, notice, to earth. Not to death or to the land of the dead, not to Sheol, but down to earth. Therefore, on this day, the anger of the Lord has not remembered his footstool, or more precisely, the city of Jerusalem. So we, we should all with this, this accusation, let this accusation kind of settle in of what the poet is saying, that the Lord has forgotten. So this is not just, here's what's going on. This is not just circumstantial anymore. Now it, it, he chooses this sort of accusational language back to God. You have forgotten. After all, God has promised his people much. He promised that he would always remember them. So in places like Exodus... 2 and 24, 6, verse 4, God remembers his covenant and acts on Israel's behalf. Psalm 105, 8 tells us that's who he is. God, the psalmist says, remembers his covenant forever. The word that he commanded for a thousand generations. So this divine forgetfulness that the poet is articulating is a direct reversal of fortunes that God has promised to his people, Jerusalem, for their sinful rejection of the covenant. And their relational dynamic now has changed. Therefore, there's distance. So having established this angst against God, look now at verse two. The poet is about to unload. And to feel the weight of it, we're going to read a number of verses in a row so that we feel the weight of the accusation that the poet is bringing upon the Lord, really assaults against him with emotion and passion. And let's remember, this is poetic, artistic expression. The emotions should be sensed and felt. Notice verse two. The Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the inhabitants of Jacob. In his wrath, he has broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought down to the ground and dishonor the kingdom and its rulers. He has cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. He has withdrawn from them his right hand in the face of the enemy. He has burned like a flaming fire in Jacob, consuming all around. He has bent his bow like an enemy with his right hand set like a foe and He has killed all who were delightful in our eyes in the tent of the daughter of Zion. He has poured out his fury like fire. Verse 5, the Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all its palaces. He has laid its ruins in its strongholds, and he has multiplied it. In the daughter of, he has multiplied in the daughter of Judah, mourning and lamentation. He has laid waste his booth like a garden, laid in ruins his meeting place. The Lord has made Zion forget festival and Sabbath, and in his fierce indignation has spurned the king and priest. Verse 7, the Lord has scorned his altar, disowned his sanctuary. He has delivered into the hand of the enemy the walls of her palaces. They raised a clamor in the house of the Lord as on the day of festival. 
The Lord determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion. He stretched out the measuring line. He did not restrain his hand from destroying. He caused rampart and wall to lament. They languish together. Notice, the Lord is swallowed up, broken down, brought down, cut down, withdrawn, burned, bent his bow, killed, become like an enemy, swallowed up and then swallowed up again. This will be a repeated metaphor and refrain. Laid in ruins, multiplied mourning and lamentation, laid waste, laid in ruin, made Zion forget, scorned, disowned, delivered into the hands of the enemy, laid in ruin, did not restrain, caused lament. What's more is communicated within the artistry of this poem. It's not only all of these verbs that are associated with God, but also each of these words or each of these situations is a metanome. In other words, it is a picture of one thing that represents a whole. Walls represent the whole city. Palaces represent government and whole structures and systems. Feast and, and Sabbath represent celebration and worship. Jerusalem, in other words, is not just being destroyed by, by God, not just the things of Jerusalem being destroyed by God, but their very existence and identity is being pulled apart. Let that settle in all at the hand of their God. And all that God has done Notice throughout this, all that God has done is being fueled by his anger toward Jerusalem. What's more, verse 8 makes it clear that this was not anger sparked by a lack of self-control, but look at that word, he determined or planned his indignant response. The Hebrew word here denotes intentionality. In other words, having already centered his angst in God in, in the first verse, now tw- twice, in fact, in the first verse, now in verses two through eight, four different times God's anger is the explanation that the poet gives for God's behavior and actions. Look at verse two, in his anger. Look at verse three, in fierce anger. Look at verse four, poured out his fury. Verse six, in his fierce indignation. The question that leaps from the text is, where are they going to go now? If their city is ruined and their God is angry, where are they going to go now? Remember, we talked about this. We're going to want to look at this real quick and just get to some hope and get to the gospel and get to Jesus. You're like, preacher, there's a lot of things that will really encourage us. Why don't we get there? Let this settle, please. Something is stirring within the people of God that ought to be stirring in us. Where are we going to go? Where are we going to go now? See, all that the poet has seen the Lord do and undo results in this breaking down or broken down now city, a broken down people, a people, now, now notice from nine, verses 9 on, who now wallow in the dirt. Look at this, verse, verse 9. Her gates have sunk into the ground. He has ruined and broken her bars. Her king and princes are among the nations. The law is no more. And her prophets find no vision from the Lord. The elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground in silence. They have thrown dust on their heads and put on sackcloth. The young women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. 
they're not dead yet, but death seems to be right around the corner. Gates are sinking into the ground. Kings and princes are scattered. The law, the Torah, the very word of God is gone. Vision has vanished. Their wise elders sit in the dirt with nothing to say. Dust is on their heads. They're wearing funeral clothes. Women have their faces in the ground. They're not dead, but they're real close. The wrath of God is heavy upon the people, and this weight, you feel this weight in the text just sinking them beneath the soil. And the poet seems to be pushing back against the Lord, overwhelmed on the behalf of Israel, just pushing back against this, pushing back against this, almost, almost begging for them, where are they going to go if you're so angry? Where are they going to go if you've done all this? Simple observation and even some Emotional accusation now give way to a more personal and introspective, and I think even compassionate lament for the city. See, in particular, now the poet will, will lament for children in Jerusalem. Look at verse 11. My eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. My bile is poured out to the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people, because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. They cry to their mother, where is bread and wine? As they faint like a wounded man in the streets of the city, as their life is poured out on their mother's bosom. Everything changes a bit here in verse 11. The, the, the tone of the poem goes away from this accusation towards God and now grieves on behalf of the people of God. Notice, he is so affected by the suffering of the people around him, his kinsmen, his people, that he's ill and sick to the stomach. He may even be describing vomit here as his bile is poured out all over the ground for the suffering, considering the suffering of children in Jerusalem. Now the suffering of the city turns from this personal guilt and shame, and now we see this sort of general consequence, or rather, rather generational consequence and curse that now fills the city. What's more devastating than watching a child suffer for the sins of another? That's what's taking place here. Not only the surrounding community, like the poet seeing this, but how much more the, the city, this, this, this picture of a weeping widow for her own children. You hope that something of this will cause sobriety over sin. Children are fainting in the streets because of hunger and thirst, some even as they nurse from their mother. This is perhaps one of the lowest and darkest moments in all of Lamentations. And it's here that the poet steps back away from where he initially is accusing the Lord and secondly, then identifying and lamenting with Israel to now asking them a question, almost retrospectively over them. Look at verse 13. What can I say for you? To what compare you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What can I liken to you that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is vast as the sea. Who can heal you? Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They've not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes, but have seen for you oracles that are false and misleading. He looks over the city with mourning, lamenting and shame and anguish, and then he, he pities them. Not only are our children dying in the streets, but the prophets are now spreading visions and lies that are not true. So he essentially just goes, what am I going to say to you? 
I can't do anything to comfort you. I've never seen anything like this. He's sort of at a loss for words. He pulls back, doesn't know what to say. Who can bring you comfort? Who can bring you healing? Where are you going to go? Jerusalem is devastated. And Jerusalem is not just devastated, but devastated by the very hand and anger of their God. Jerusalem is sinking to the ground. Her people are dying in the streets. Notice this constant motif. In the streets, not in some dignified, silent shadow or corner, but where everyone can see it. Where are they going to go now? In this broken down state, in this utterly gut-wrenching sequence, people start walking by. As if it wasn't enough, now their neighbors come by. Listen to this, verse 15. All who pass the way clap their hands at you. They hiss and wag their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of the earth? Verse 16, all your enemies rail against you. They hiss, they gnash their teeth, they cry. We have swallowed her. Ah, this is the day we longed for. Now we have it. We see it. Pick up on this. Not only are people dying and are shamed and broken down, the whole city is sinking, but now their enemies walk by and go, this is awesome. Not just people, they're they're enemies. Look at the city suffering broken and they almost take credit for it, if not just approval. Like this is what we've been asking for. This is what we have desired. We've desired for them to be broken and ruined. They hiss at them. They clap in approval. They shake their heads. They gnash their teeth. I know we may not be familiar with that particular picture. It's not good. They gnash their teeth at them. They're taking delight in the downfall of their foe. Their shame, the city's shame is complicated by the celebration of their enemies. Can you even imagine? Where are they going to go? In the first 16 verses, I think what we discover in chapter 2 is that Zion has found a friend. Because where once the poet was sort of accusing and pushing the weight upon them, now he seems to be identifying, lamenting with them, and even stepping back and just go, I'm trying to help, but I don't know what to do. You ever felt like this? It's so broken, it's so bad, I want to be your friend, but I just don't even know how. See, in the first poem, he's just recording what he sees. Like a reporter, here's what's going on, and here's perhaps why. But now, as we turn to chapter 2, his focus is on God's anger. And with great passion, the poet rails against God, and he tries to identify with compassion for the people of God. Then he turns directly towards the city and speaks to this weeping woman, and he tries to just identify with her. And it's here, it's really interesting. We can't quite understand in the poem whether or not the poet is trying to comfort the people of God or console himself. And if you've been in that room with someone where you're not quite sure what to say, there is this kind of dual work going on of trying to give hope while also asking, is there hope? He's not sure what to do. He's so broken. We see within the framework of this poem, it's so beautiful and how broken and messy and real it is. He's trying to encourage them, but he also needs some encouragement. Am I preaching to you yet? I hope this is gonna get your heart like it's getting mine because sometimes you get in a room so broken, you wanna speak truth, but you don't know what it is. It's so messy that you're just trusting God. There's got to be power here. There's got to be help here. But would you help me see it? I'm trying to offer it. 
By the way, this is, this is when you start realizing you're actually in the presence of God. Because you recognize your utter need for him. We're ruined if he doesn't show up. It's here where we're instructed by the text in verse 17 to look more closely at the character of God. Notice this, verse 17. The Lord has done what he purposed. He has carried out his word, which he commanded long ago. He has thrown down without pity. He has made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foe. Should we think that Jerusalem's enemies have gotten away with something? Should we think they have simply overpowered the city of God? Should we think that somehow God has merely turned his back on his people for no good reason? Verse 17 causes us to think again. The Lord, and in, in, this, in this case, has done something, has done exactly what he purposed Not only so, he has carried out his word. He is simply doing what he commanded long ago. In Leviticus, in Deuteronomy, in Jeremiah, in Zechariah, God vowed that he would destroy the city as a result of their sin and his anger. This is not a situation that has somehow slipped out of his control. Slipped out of his grasp. That the moment got away from him. Like in my anger, how things get away from me. And all of a sudden I do things that I otherwise would regret. Perhaps you can identify with that. This is not a situation that has slipped out of his control. In the storm, even in consequence, God is sovereign. This is actually what should be deeply comforting to us. That even in his anger, he's fully in control. Even when we have no idea what he's doing, what's going on, why this is happening to me, what to say to this person. In his anger, God has not lacked control or lost control. He is demonstrating his control, even faithfulness to his word here. All this speaks to a couple of ideas about who God is, his sovereignty and his providence. Often we use these interchangeably or not at all because we don't understand them. They're two interrelated doctrines. Let's break it down this way. When we say that God is sovereign, we're at least saying two things, that God has the right to do as he pleases and God has the power to do as he pleases. God has the right to do as he pleases and God has the power. This this is what it means that he he is sovereign. Romans 8 categorizes, explains, and celebrates this well for us. And when we say that God is providential, we're saying that but much more. We are saying four more things, that God made everything that God preserves everything, that God works in everything. And in fact, that in everything, God is bringing about his good, pleasing, and perfect will. And so when we hear that even in the storm of anger, even in the storm of consequence, that this is what he purposed, this is him carrying out his word, this is what he commanded long ago, what we're given a picture of is his sovereignty and providence even here. Sovereignty means or rather is all about his control. Providence is all about his purpose and his goodness. And so, we, we must consider that if God is only sovereign, we have much to fear. We may have much to fear in his anger because he will do and can do as he pleases. But if his sovereignty is complemented by his providence, then we have great gain in submitting to his lordship even in the storm of consequence. If he is not just able, but he is good, even here we trust him. Because in his sovereignty and his providence, his goodness is always demonstrated.
As one pastor put it, providence is sovereignty in the service of wise purpose. Providence is sovereignty in the service of wise purposes. God's providence bears witness to his utter goodness through his ultimate power. And in pain and agony, therefore, Job could say this to the Lord in Job 42.2, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Job said that. Job, whose life was pulled apart more, if not just as much as anybody else's, says in, in verse two of chapter 42, I know that you do all things. In other words, that, that you're sovereign. But he also says, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. You're also providential. You can do anything. You are able to do as you please. And what you please is the goodness and purposes that you have instituted before the foundation of the world. There's an intrinsic comfort to know that when things feel like they're falling apart, even our close proximity and relationship with God, that he has not lost control. Even here where we, the voice of God continues to be absent, by the way, in Lamentations, knowing who he is means that even in his anger, there is purpose and there is goodness. Even in his anger, church, there is purpose and there is goodness. So when God gets angry in the Bible and to this day, we are seeing his sovereignty and providence reclaim the precious and the important, the virtuous, the eternal. He is reclaiming what has been destroyed by the sinister. In his anger, he is reclaiming holiness. He's reclaiming his purposes. He's reclaiming his order. He is reclaiming comfort. He is not simply proving a point to you. He is not flexing with pride. He's not losing his way. The chaos in Lamentations is not found in the storm of God's anger. The chaos is found in the centuries of disregard and disobedience, which led to this day of the Lord's anger. Sin brings disorder. Sin brings confusion. Sin brings chaos. God restores all of those things. That means where sin has brought disorder, God's anger is resetting what is right. And so if God is anger, angry even at us, if we read the scriptures, if we experience in life and feel as though there is anger upon me, the question is not, has he lost control, but where has sin prevailed, that his, his holiness must now persist. With such, a, I think, a powerful, albeit quick picture in verse 17 of the character of God, the poet now calls Jerusalem to action. It's the first time that he does this, responding to the righteousness of God. Look at verse 18. Based upon the sovereignty of God, the providence of God, even in the anger of God. Verse 18, their heart cried out to the Lord. O wall of the daughter of Zion, let tears stream down like a torrent day and night. Give yourself no rest, your eyes no respite. Arise, cry out in the night, at the beginning of the night watches. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to him for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. The, the weeping woman here is directed to, and instructed even by the poet for the very first time. The narrator has chided her, has lamented with her, has lamented for her, has cried out toward God on her behalf. And now, as the power dynamic continues to fluctuate within Lamentations chapter 2, he now gives her instructional encouragement. He says to her in verse 18, he encourages her, cry out. 
cry out. Not only that, but he encourages her to pray in the middle of the night. In other words, where you think that you're going to find rest, stay up and pray. That will give you rest. Cry out, stay up, pray. Thirdly, he encourages her to speak with complete vulnerability in verse 19. He says, pour out your heart. In other words, hold nothing back. Keep it 100. Be be completely true. Be completely transparent. Fourth, he says, he encourages her to physically demonstrate surrender and worship. Lift up your hands for the lives of your children. This is so helpful for us because where we may be tempted when we sense the anger of God to recoil and distance ourselves, the poet instructs the city to do the exact opposite. Don't create distance. Don't move away. Cry out. Don't try to escape by just sleeping it off and sleeping through it. Stay up, pray, cry out to God. Don't hold things back and try to be, oh, so religious, Jason, and put your prayers in just the right way, footnoted appropriately so you feel like you're being religious. Don't do that. Pour out your heart. God, this hurts. God, I don't see you. God, I'm angry. God, it feels like you've forgotten me. God, this is wrong. This is not right, the what I'm seeing. God, if this is in my heart, help me understand. Help me lament. Help me cry out. God, forgive me if this is in me. God, I'm lifting up my hands to you and surrender. I'm not trying to keep it together here. I'm falling down before you. And here some of us are like, this is not my personality. All of our personalities are broken. They need the redemptive work of Jesus. Can I get an amen? Some of us need to be pushed outside of the boundaries of our personality that we might lament and weep and wail and cry out as the psalm, or rather as the poet instructs us here. I get it. Believe me, I have way more introverted tendencies than this sermonic moment often seems to suggest. We're often called into spaces that are deeply uncomfortable for us. Just cry out. Pray in the middle of the night. Be completely vulnerable. Fall on the ground. Lift up your hands. All of this, though, notice. Here's, this is so beautiful. All of this is meant to take place in a particular location in the presence of God, in his very presence. Cry out to the Lord. Go to him. Isn't it true that one of the ways that we try to run from God is by talking about him to everyone but him? We want to be good brothers and sisters when somebody is coming with us, lamenting, frustrated, angry, in the middle of sin, a great question to ask is, have you spoken with the Lord about this yet? I confess to you, a lot of times I don't even ask that. I just go, I'm glad you came to me because this is where you're going to get your problems fixed because I know stuff and I can help you. It's really arrogant to not point our brothers and sisters back to the Lord. Are you with me? It's supposing that I'm the source of wisdom. I'm the source of comfort. I'm the one to cry out to. To be sure, we need our brothers and sisters and we should do that. But what it means to be brothers and sisters is to constantly point each other back to our Father. All of this lament is meant to take place. All of this crying out is in the very presence of God, in the presence of God who is sovereign, who can do anything, 
the presence of God who is providential, who is good and purposeful in all things. You see, only if the God who is angry and in control is also good and purposeful, only then is his presence the place where we can go to him about his anger. Only if those, all of those things are true about him that I am drawn to his presence, not repelled by it, even in my sin, even in my confusion, and even in my pain. In fact, he is all, if he is all those things, there's no better place to go. Where will they go now? The very presence of God. So for us, the question remains, do you believe a God who is angry is also good? A God who has righteous indignation against sin is also goodness beyond measure. See, in our conception and understanding of the Lord, do we know and trust him to be angry for the sake of our good? Remember how last Sunday, we're going to be asked to look at our sin and then look at it again, and as soon as you feel like, all right, we've looked at it enough, we're going to have to look at it again. This is what Lamentations constantly calls us to do in our grief and our sorrow We'll want to look at our sin and our shame and our guilt real quickly, but Lamentations, as God's inspired word, will force us to look longer and more thoughtfully at our brokenness together. See, right when we're getting this breath of fresh air, if you will, about who God is and his character, look at verses 20 and 22. They cause us to look again. Stylistically, it's necessary to note that Jerusalem now is speaking. The weeping woman now takes the counsel of the poet to heart and she responds. Hear her words in verse 20. Look, O Lord, and see with whom you've dealt thus. Should women eat the fruit of their womb, their children of their tender care? Should priests and prophets be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? In the dust of the streets lie the young and the old. My young women and my young men have fallen by the sword. You have killed them in the day of your anger, slaughtered without pity. You summoned as if to a festival day my terrors on every side. And on the day of the anger of the Lord, no one escaped or survived. Those whom I held and raised my enemy destroyed. I don't know, you guys. I just feel like she's speaking in a way sometimes I'm not familiar with. Asking questions that I'm worried if I don't have a theological answer for the question I ask God, then he must not be worthy of hearing me ask it as if there is such a thing. He says, why are people dying all around me? Why are children dying? Why is my spiritual community, the priests and prophets, being killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? I mean, these are tender words that she is crying out to God in the dust of the streets. There's people dying and laying dead. I don't know, you guys, I just escape so often in just my own theological conviction and just go, well, I know God's good and so I'm not gonna cry and wail and weep and be broken over the death I see, the brokenness I see, the sin I see. If I'm honest with you, I think it's just a protection so I don't feel weaker than I already do. It's not because the Lord can't answer the bell or answer the question. See, her first cry is so heartfelt. She says, look and see, the face of the Lord communicates She's she's calling for for God's face. Why? Because the face of the Lord communicates favor. Essentially, she's saying, will you please look at me? Will you please look at me? Will you give me your attention? Will you you look at me? Jerusalem is essentially asking for mercy in the form of God's attention. Despite the direct cries and prayers, notice he doesn't relent. 
He still doesn't speak. Priests and prophets now die, and so do more children. In the dust of the streets, this motif of dust and dirt continue. The ground returns. But this time, they're not just sinking, they're dying. Sometimes, church, we feel the full weight of our sin. Sometimes we're not given grace in the form of immediate consequences being relieved. Sometimes God does not hold back. Sometimes we are, we are not physically or relationally protected in the immediate moment. Sometimes we experience great loss, great pain, great hurt, great embarrassment, great humiliation, great guilt, death, and consequences for our sin. Sometimes God feels silent. Sometimes God is angry. Sometimes God feels distant and cold and forgetful and even manipulative and out of control and irritable and, well, not like the God that I love. Where are we going to go now? I mean, if this is who he is, where are we going to go now? In all of this, it certainly doesn't feel like it's good to be close to God. That's not why we came to church, to be close to that kind of God. That's the way we may categorize it. But here's what the poet does that is so helpful. Remember, this is a poem, and he's borrowing, in particular, in chapter two, in this second poem, he's borrowing elements from three different genres of poetry. He's bringing an individual lament in the way that he personally cries out. He's bringing in communal lament in the way he cries out with the city. But he's also brought in a funeral dirge. And as one commentator explains that this particular text is a masterful blending of all of these literary, literary types and techniques. Since it borrows from these three genres, though, not every aspect of the genre is present. And it's instructive for us what is absent as much as what is present particularly absent from the dirge, literary form, is the pronouncement of death. You see, a formal announcement that someone has died is necessary for the full art form of a dirge to be expressed. In other words, in this poem, the dirge provides the drudgery, the pain, creating this tone of a funeral, something that we've sensed from the very beginning all the way up into the end. But hear this, Jerusalem is never pronounced dead. The poet has taken great care and woven in this hopefulness in what he has not included in Lamentations chapter 2. In fact, if you look again at verse 1, Jerusalem has fallen from heaven to earth, but not to Sheol. Jerusalem, hear this church, this will preach. Jerusalem has fallen from heaven to earth, but not to the land of the dead. Not to Sheol. She is not buried. She is on the earth, but she is not underneath the earth. In other words, she is ruined, but not beyond repair. I wonder if you're with me yet. She is ruined, but not beyond repair. She's not beyond forgiveness. She is not her sin. She is not beyond restoration, and she is not beyond resurrection. Not only so, but where was the praying and the crying out, the pouring out? Where was all the worshipful repentance happening? In the presence of the Lord. She's never left the presence of the Lord. This is fantastic. That in all of this weariness, in all of this pain, the poet says, cry out to God. Why? Because he's listening. Because he's here. He is a God who is still with us. Somehow, the poem brings out the depths of death but never pronounces death. We are never dead and gone in this poem. 
Things are dim, but the curtains have not been drawn. Things are frustrating, but they are not over. Hanging on by a thread is this vital language that we find for our grief and our guilt from lamentations. It's a way of speaking that I think sometimes we're fearful of because it acts like it's not hopeful, but there's hope laced throughout this poem. We should find these spaces, spaces in what's left out with the dirge, spaces in the fact that it's to earth and not, not sheol. There's these spaces where light continues to penetrate. There are these places that, that ultimately we find language, we find comfort, and all of these things should point us to the cross. Because is the cross not a story about a father and an innocent child and righteous wrath? Bound by his goodness and justice, God was and is unable to overlook our sin. That's his anger and his wrath. But in his providence, he brings about his purposes through his one and only Son, And as the agony of his father's wrath overwhelmed Jesus in the Mount of Olives, he knelt down and he prayed. The unlike Jerusalem, he goes immediately to his father and he says this in Luke chapter 22, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus is praying about the wrath of God. See, in the New Testament, the cup was symbolic for the suffering that Jesus would go through on the cross. More broadly, it's an understanding of the wrath and anger of God. Jeremiah wrote about it in chapter 5 or 25, verse 15. He said, Thus the Lord, the God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand the cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. Jesus is taking or rather is asking for the wrath of God to be taken from him, not unlike the weeping woman in Lamentations. And like Lamentations, if you, if you look at Luke 20, 22, the father doesn't respond. He doesn't speak. So if you have ever felt what it's like to not hear back from God when you've asked him a direct request for something to be alleviated and taken from you, the Lord Jesus knows what that's like. Knows what that's like. The Lord does not relent. In fact, he doesn't take the wrath from him, does he? He has to endure the cross. And instead, Luke records this most beautiful and tender moment where an angel from heaven comes to strengthen Jesus. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, Jesus did, and sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Jesus is in agony knowing that on the cross, he would become the propitiation or the wrath bearer for your sin and for mine, the sins of the world. See, what we see leaking mostly from the pages of Lamentations 2 is a preparation to see Jesus. Jesus, like the poet, emotionally and physically identifies with those who are suffering. Jesus, like the poet, acknowledges the righteous anger of God without equivocation. Jesus, like the poet, in many ways was overwhelmed by the weight of wrath, asking for it to relent. Jesus, like the weeping woman, prays and cries out to God for his anger to be appeased. Jesus, like the weeping woman, does not get an audible response from God, and the wrath remains upon him. Jesus, like the children in the street, is innocent and yet dies because of the sins of others. So through the providence and sovereignty of God's righteous anger, we see Jesus. As a nation, Israel was being prepared to see the Messiah. As readers, as a church, we are being prepared and we were being prepared 
for Jesus, even for us. This is how God's anger reclaims his glory, his purposes, even in our hearts. Because unlike the suffering city, where we merely see a glimmer of hope, in Christ we experience hope on full blast. See, in Jesus, we do not have a suffering servant only, but a suffering Savior who is our substitute. Isaiah foretold this in Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our grief, griefs and carried them, carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, peace and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquities of us all. Jesus bore our grief and endured our affliction and God's righteous anger on the cross. Therefore, any affliction we face is momentary, bound up in the death of this life because the fullness of God's anger has been lifted, was directed towards Christ. It is no longer on us when we are found in him. So where are we gonna go now? To the very presence of the Lord by the merit and power and worth and beauty of Jesus. Do you see The presence of God is not a thing that we feel. The closeness with God is not something that we just experience. It is our status in Christ. See, Lamentations points us to Christ and it gives us language for our grief and our anguish. And so through Christ and our grief and consequence, we lament to the Heavenly Father, not because he is unjust, but because we are in his presence. This is why we can sing and cry out to Jesus, our mediator, and beg and plead to him in Christ alone. What heights of love, what depths of peace, what fears are stilled what, when striving cease, my comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ, I stand. Even in his anger, we stand in the presence of God in Christ. We stand in his love, we stand in his affection, we stand in trust because we are in him Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this reminder, this truth of the gospel that has knit us back together again where we have been broken and pulled apart. I ask for your forgiveness in ways that I don't trust you. whether it's with questions or crying out or lamenting or even understanding that I should lament over the brokenness in my heart and in my world. Father, we cry out to you as a people and we confess that often we are so uncomfortable with your anger because we're so comfortable with our sin. So remind us afresh today that if we stand in Christ, then we get to remain in your presence through every storm of this life. And we thank you, Father, that the one who died in our place and for our sins is the one whom we are still in today and who is in us. So, Father, when our feelings wane, when circumstances change, would you remind us that our identity, our status does not. Therefore, we always have a redeemer. We always have a hope. We always have one we can cry to. We always have one we can be honest with and vulnerable and fully exposed to because we are in him, we are in you, and we are in this together. So be glorified, we pray, as we sing and celebrate this good news of Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.
Would you stand and sing with us?